Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast explores the increasingly popular world of non-fiction books and the issues underpinning it, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes insight on this year's prize journey as we announce the 2021 longlist, shortlist and winner later this year. The Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing for the last 22 years, spanning across the diverse fields of history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. The list is clearly very long. Today we'll be delving into the topic of sports writing. As a big summer of sports is underway and many are travelling to stadiums around the UK and the world, and perhaps just sitting in their on their sofas at home, one cannot and should not ignore the ageless art of sports writing, whether that be fiction, autobiography or journalism. Joining us today remotely is novelist and sports journalist from The Times newspaper, Alison Rudd, Alongside being a keen footballer herself and a passionate commentator of many sports, she chaired the William Hill Sports Book of the Year judging panel for the 2019 award. She's also a best-selling author whose fictional works Eleven Lines to Somewhere and The First Time Lauren Paling Died have been moving and gripping accompaniments to her non-fiction work including AstroTurf Blonde, which examines her attraction to football and her experiences of training and playing the sport herself. A very warm welcome to you, Alison. Also joining us today is novelist, screenwriter and newspaper columnist Boris Starling. His first book, Messiah, was an immediate success, reaching both the New York Times and the official UK bestseller list, alongside being adapted for television by the BBC. He's also ghostwritten a few sports autobiographies, including for jockey Frankie Dottori and rugby captain Sam Warburton. His sports journalism emphasises the emotion of sport, highlighting its tempestuous nature and how its highs and lows relate to life in many ways. His new novel, The Law of the Heart, has also been recently published um, just this August. Alison Boris, thank you very much for joining us today. Let me start by asking both of you just very quickly um, what it is that that took you to sports writing. I mean, I, I can imagine that part of it is just that that you probably played, but I, I just want you both. Let's start with you, Alison, because clearly you you it, it is to do with you being a participant as well. But outline for me the the, the desire to to write about it. Oh well. Um... It, I, I'm embarrassed how simple it is, really. I mean, I loved writing when I was a child and I loved sport. So <laughs> it's like, what would be the perfect job? Well, writing about sport. So um, I I think the writing came first because I didn't really get when I was young that you could actually make a living from um, doing the perfect job. So I sort of assumed I'd be a journalist and play sport for pleasure. Um And then I found myself uh, in my first sort of um, journalistic endeavours writing about finance and I was faking it. I was (laughs) was pretending to feel passion for the Financial Services Act and it wasn't real. And I thought, imagine, imagine if I could write about something I genuinely felt passionate about. And everyone said, oh, you can never change. You're in a box now. You're in a firm pigeonhole. 
you can't just float around and write about different things. Well, that was like, that was like the ultimate challenge. I love being told something's not possible. So I just made sure I made that leap. I actually took a big salary drop to get on the sports writing ladder. That's how passionate I was about the idea of doing it. And, um, but never, never once regretted it. It is an absolute privilege to be sat in a stadium and be the person to describe wonderful events, um, historic events. And it's also a privilege to interview people who've achieved things that are once in a lifetime, hard won, hard fought for, uh, and to ask them about their innermost emotions and thoughts and ambitions. So I feel very lucky to have the job I do. That's such a great story. Boris, what about you? Um, largely similar, I think. I'm, I'm still pretty sporty in my 50s. Um, I think uh, with more enthusiasm than skill. I, I play football every week. I run ultra marathons. I play cricket to a visibly low standard. Um, <clears throat> but again, I, I, was always, I was always a writer. I was a writer at school. Um, and I, I did the City University um, MA in journalism. And when Alison talks about the Financial Services Act, um, that really resonated because we all had to do a sort of special subject and they tried to make us do things, you know, important things like finance and, um, and foreign affairs and so on. And I just wanted to do sport. And in the end, I ended up doing sport um, with, and this shows you how, how, you know, interest in life changed. One of the other guys on my um, sports thing was Jason Solomons, who now does a lot of film stuff for the BBC. Um, also my very good friend, Ken Wewa, um, who died a few years ago. Um, but I just loved, I loved exactly what Alison loves about it. I love writing about it. I love the way in which it, it mirrors life and all its dramas. Um, there's very little I ever see in sport that can't be linked back to some other, some other sector of life and form of life. And, and the lessons it teaches people, I think are really valuable life lessons. You know, the obvious ones of teamwork, camaraderie, you know, Kipling's thing of treating the imposters the same. Um, setting yourself on something, discipline, training, all those things, I, I think, are, are really valuable. That's so interesting that, that, that sports writing, of course, tells us so much about, um, about life beyond uh, the sport itself. The first sports book that I ever read was C.L.R. James's Beyond a Boundary, now, of course, regarded as, as a seminal uh, book on, on cricket. This, this great Trinidadian intellectual cricket writer, cricket lover, he said, cricket had plunged me into politics long before I was aware of it. When I did turn to politics, I did not have too much to learn. It, encapsulating what what sports um, does and what sports um, can tell us about society. When we look at uh, the milestone, Alison, that uh, England reached in um, in getting to the Euro 2020 final, so much was written and said about that moment, not just the the reaching of that final, but, but the football players, the manager, etc, etc. What did all that feel like to you as, as somebody who was observing it and, and writing about it? Um, well, I think you could make a case, if, if we're talking purely about sport, that it was a bit unbalanced. The manager, Gareth Southgate, I think he prioritised the other stuff. So he made sure that, um, well, the, what the first thing he did, which was, which was which was good and about the sport, was to make, make sure they had a team spirit. It had always traditionally been difficult to get players, you know, 
from Man United and Liverpool and Chelsea to sit at the same table and so on. But he didn't just stop there. He made sure the players were able to talk openly and honestly with the media. He tried to break down those barriers. Again, they've been around for a long time, a sort of mistrust because uh, sports media, like a lot of others, has um, a reputation for building up reputations and then knocking them down rather brutally. And he wanted to, Gareth Southgate, he wanted to make sure that the relations um, were, re- were really good between the media. But then he, he also went beyond that. He, he, he backed players who had political standpoints. Um, he talked about world history, the history of war, um, the history of race relations when he was uh, in his post-match press conferences. So normally, if you have a iconic sporting occasion, it's usually the commentators, the external people who attach meaning beyond the obvious two events. But you, what you had here was the manager doing it for you. <laughs> so I, I felt it was um, I thought really interesting from that point of view. He had a manager who was very aware of the wider significance and almost dictating what that wider significance was. So he, on several occasions, just for one example, would say, he didn't just say once, I support the players taking the knee. He said it several times and he explained very eloquently why he felt it was important to do so. These are unprecedented types of approach from a managerial standpoint, coaching standpoint to take. So you don't almost, I think we almost don't need books about what it meant for England and for the for, for the for the society because you it, it unfolded before us. We had the uh, narrative and the political and sociological analysis running parallel with the football. And I would just end by saying, you know, it, there's a tiny bit of me that thinks if he if we'd had a coach that was only bothered about football, maybe, maybe they might have won it. Wow. Uh, that, that's so interesting that, that it was all happening as we were seeing it unfold. And I, I, I bet, though, there will be books about this particular mm. <laughs> Boris, how did it start strike you? Um, I, actually, weirdly, I, I wrote a, a thing about it on social media and um, sitting at my kitchen table late on Saturday night, just tapping out a few thoughts on my iPhone that then went viral and ended up bizarrely on Radio 5 and I think even as far as Australia, a little piece I wrote called This Is England. And I just wrote about, off the top of my head, all the things that I've read about some of the players. You know, that this here was, for example, Tyrone Mings, who on his debut in Bulgaria, when he was racially abused, didn't turn the other cheek. He turned to the linesman and said, do you hear that? What are you going to do about it? You know, people like, like Declan Rice, who played football, cage football every day, not because they were the best, but because they weren't. People like Bukayo Saka, who had, um, you know, who's got A stars and A's in his GCSEs because his parents still insist that he has a good education. And as a sort of as a counterpoint to to all the negativity around at the moment, and all people's fairly justified cynicism about politics and and the system in in inverted commas, that for a long time as an England fan, um, the the England team were worth supporting purely because you happen to share a passport with them. Um, you know, and I can remember going back to the days of, for example, the 2010 World Cup or the 2006 World Cup and all the fiasco about the wags in Baden-Baden and Germany and Wayne Rooney coming off after nil-nil against Algeria in Cape Town, being booed and saying, do you hear that? Um, and finally, you know, and this was also the case three years ago in, in Russia, 
that there's a team that you can get behind because they seem to be really, really good young men. And, you know, and of course, the most obvious one, Marcus Rashford. But people who have good values, you know, they're not saints. They're young men, you know, who've, who've done silly things and will continue to do silly things. Um, but they are fundamentally good people. And Southgate is, a, is a, a good person with good values. And I think that is a, as a something for the nation to, to hang on to was was very valuable. Do you do you think that there has been a shift though in the way in which sports sports writing has developed and evolved? Not just not just books, but but the journalism of of writing about sports. Because we've we've clearly seen uh, people who have used sports uh, sports people who have used their fame and their success um, as a you know, for political platforms, for for saying all kinds of things. You know, even if you just have to go back to um, the Mexico Olympics, or even even further back with Jesse Owens in, at the Olympics. You know, that there have always been sports people who have been willing to use their platform. But I wonder whether there has been a shift in terms of the relationship between those who write about it and those who are taking part, and what they are. It is, I suppose, a question about the relationship between sports writers and the people that they write about i mean let's stay with you boris for, for a moment i mean do, do you feel that there has been a shift over the over the decades i do th- i do think there has been a shift and i think there's been especially a shift here um in the last 10 15 years and i think and clearly you, you can never quite date these things um down to one thing but i think one of the major things is, is that sports men and women have become much more um willing to share their internal thoughts and their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities. You know, you see this most obviously in the last couple of days with Simone Biles. But I think in this country, it probably goes back to Marcus Treskothic, um, the cricketer. And I remember when he he came out with, with depression, even, even saying he came out as if it was a sordid secret. But at the time, that's how it was treated. They were, you know, he went home from a tour and there was sort of stuff about a mystery illness. And there were even rumours that a teammate was having an affair with his wife and so on. In fact, he had depression and he spoke about it and he spoke very eloquently about it. Um, his book, Coming Back to Me, won sports book, William Hill Sports Book of the Year. And I think since then, gradually, people have become much more willing to talk about it. When I did Sam Warburton's autobiography, the very first morning we had our session, we were in a hotel room in, in Newport. It was January the 2nd. And he told me about the time before the second Lions test in 2017 in Wellington, the biggest match of his life, including a World Cup semi-final. But at two in the morning, he's standing there in floods of tears on the phone to his mum in Cardiff um, with a ti- you know, with a different time zone saying, I want to come home um, like he's a little boy again. And I wrote on my pad in big letters, prologue. And he looked across and saw it and laughed. And he said, you can't put that in. It'll make me look like a dreadful mummy's boy. And I said, no one who's ever watched you play thinks you're a mummy's boy. And I said, it's also perfect because this is what people want to read about. They want to know that you have vulnerabilities like everybody else. They want to know that you overcome these things. You don't just turn up and go on the pitch like a robot and smash into people and so on. And I found this again with, I've been doing um, a book called Rise with Sia Khaliti, the Springbok captain. You know, and he was very honest about, um, you know, his failures, his his, his alcoholism um, to a degree, all, this, all the troubles he had growing up in a, in a township called Zwede outside Port Elizabeth. Um, and I think 15, 20 years ago, they wouldn't have volunteered. I wouldn't have asked. Publishers wouldn't necessarily have been interested. Um, and people want, they want that now. I think that's, it's, it's a much more confessional um, situation, which, you know, 
people's mileage may vary on whether on whether that's altogether good, but I certainly think it makes it makes the subjects we write about much more engaging and human. Uh, Alison, what what are your thoughts on this? I mean, pr- presumably it's been your experience too. That that I mean, we do live in a in a more confessional age, and and the need for people to to ask how you're feeling as opposed to asking a harder factual question is 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 much more prevalent. Yeah, well, I've I've been a a judge or chair of the William Hill Sports Book of the Year since um, 2006. And Boris is right to uh, zoom in on the Marcus Tress Gothic book because um, that was that was a watershed moment because it wasn't very well written. And I had a problem with a book that wasn't very well written winning an award. <laughs> and uh, I was out I was outvoted because people said, "Well, yeah, yeah, okay, it's not it's not not that well written, but you know, this is somebody." Being bearing their soul, saying saying things that isn't that aren't usually said. You know, it's it's you know, sports people hide their demons. They don't normally confess just how tough it it has been for them, especially when it's to do with mental health. So I I was fine with it. I agreed that that was a very important message. But the impact was even just on the William Hill Sports Book of the Year award, um, which I think has been a, I wanted to be involved with because I think it's a very important award and has helped raise the standard of sports writing, not just in terms of books, but in terms of journalism as well, is that we sort of had almost alternate um, years of rewarding good writing and then going back to um, honesty and revelation and pushing the boundaries of people being honest about how difficult it is to be a leading sports person and, and the, the toil that takes. So we've we, it's 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 been interesting. It's now, you know, you, a lot of the books that are entered are are quite confessional, and um, you can and then in that's in a broad sense. And then in microcosm, you have already at this Olympics um, the follow up question for anyone who has either just missed out on a medal or has won one has been how are you going to cope with the with the winning or the losing and what will you do next and how hard was it for you mentally to get here and the athletes are starting to say not sound bites about how much they love their mum or their coach but that they they spent nights even while they've been in Tokyo crying before before they've competed or wondering if they could possibly make it out for the start of their event so it, it's been an absolute massive, massive change in the way we, and it's, it is more immediate. So what I think what used to happen was that people would reflect upon sporting heroes and then a good biographer would dig deep and discover the demons and the warts and all story. But that would be years and years down the line. The change has been that an active athlete someone someone who hasn't just recently retired now but people who are at you know famous top of the game expected to win stuff they are now whilst they're in the middle of their career saying I am struggling or whatever it is that they feel they couldn't say they can now say so it's it's gone hand in hand but it's it's come primarily from the athletes and then the writers have picked up on it and then use the experience from the answers they've got from one athlete to think oh I mean in a cynical sense you know it's worth a punt isn't it it's worth asking somebody 
how you're coping now because you might get a very rich narrative in return. Uh, absolutely. It, it is really fascinating hearing you talk about the, the, the shifts that have taken place. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I wonder whether Marcus Strascothic probably just needed Boris Starling to, to, to write that book for him um, if it wasn't particularly well written. I mean, I, this idea of the, the writing being good is is something that of course the, the the Bailey Gifford Prize takes very very seriously indeed and there have been the most extraordinary books written about uh sporting individuals you know from if you, if you look at someone like Norman Mailer writing about Muhammad Ali or um you know the the Brian Clough books or or you know there's a whole there's a whole long list of books that are focused on individual um, managers, participants in sports, sports, sportsmen and women, which have been really, really beautifully written. And, and I, I want to talk to you really about the quality of, of writing about, uh, about sports and, and about individuals at the heart of sport and why, why that kind of stuff matters, because it is, it is an art, isn't it? I mean, but Boris, how, how important does it feel to you as both a reader and a writer of um of sport that 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 this is something that is that isn't just kind of throwaway even if even if uh Trescothic did win an award for that book it, it was that was a kind of watershed moment in a different way I mean how important is it to focus on the art and the craft of it hugely and I think to, you know just to, to sound a little bit pretentious maybe for a second you know it's as important for the writer to get it to get it right and to do the best they can as it is for the for their subject to do as best they can in their sport um and when you talk about you know when you talk about Mailer's book the fight I mean it, you know that's that's a it's poetry so I, mean, I remember he talks about the halo the halo and the serenity of Foreman's violence and it's it's art um and the way Foreman lays his the way Foreman puts his um, fists in his pockets, like a hunter would lay the rifle back in the velvet case, um, the, and therefore no. And I think for a long time, sport has been, you know, and, and we touched on this earlier. Sport has been seen as a sort of poor relation of, of in inverted commas, proper writing, and it's not at all. Um, and the best sports writing is as good as any writing anywhere on the planet. And um, and one of the things I feel very strongly about is that, and I think I think more novelists should write sports sports books because sport is at its best um all the things that novelists need to get their teeth into the problem um and when you talk about marcus's book not being very well written i don't i don't know who his his ghost was um as a ghost it's hard to get the balance because you got to you got to get their voice you got to sound like them you can't just sound like yourself because that that's that's cheating um and i do remember and i won't, I won't name names there's one current england cricketer whose autobiography i've read and it's beautifully written. It's it's really, really wonderfully written. It's also clearly doesn't sound anything like him because I've seen him interviewed a hundred times, and <laughs> and therefore I sort of feel I'm reading this thinking this is this is brilliant, but it's just not him. And so it's a very it's a very difficult balance to get to to make it as good as you can while still being recognisably their voice. Um, and maybe it's a maybe it's a balance that is never quite going to be able to get. And I mean, famously. And again, he's been in the news lately. J.R. Moringa, who wrote Agassiz's book *Open*, who's now doing Prince Harry's memoirs. Agassiz asked Moringa to be on the cover with him because he said, "This is as much your book as mine." And Moringa demurred and said, "No, no, it's your story." Um, but yeah, I think not, I think, not least, I suppose, because he thought it would sell, you know, in a different way with just Agassiz's. Yes, exactly. Part. And and I mean, yeah, and it's, and it's it's one of the best sports autobiographies, you know, of recent times. But um, yes, I think. But I think 
readers now understand the artifice behind. They understand that with a very, very few exceptions, sportsmen and women do not sit down to write their own books. Um, Alison will know better than I will. The only two I know for sure who wrote their own books were Matt Pinsent and uh, Mike Atherton, but I'm sure there've been others. Um, but yes, I mean, but it, you know, it's, it's a specialised art, and there's no reason that a world class sportsman or woman should know how to do it any more than I could climb into the British Lions number seven shirts and play like Sam did. Exactly. No, I think that's an absolutely brilliant point. Uh, well made. I mean, Alison, when when Boris talks about more novelists uh, being um, being sports writers, I mean, you are you are the manifestation of that. You write novels and you are a sports writer. So so talk about the relationship between those things in terms of the writing and why why it's important to you to to, to make sure that the writing is the best that it can be for you. Well, first of all, um, it's very important to say. Um, you should not turn sport into a novel. And there are a few people who've tried, and I have been so horribly unimpressed by making... There was a book called The Test a few years ago. Oh, Abs- absolutely God. pointless. <laughs> why? Why? Because sport is so rich in unbelievable stuff. You don't need to make it up. In fact, the the, the, the cliche that most commentators say is, you know, oh, you, you couldn't make this up. So why try? Because if the truth is fantastic why why and what all the novels i've read um that are based on sport i.e pretend protagonists pretend athletes pretend cricketers pretend whatever they're more boring than a thousand real people it, uh, it's the most peculiar subgenre ever and i just wish it would stop i think there are people out there who think they're going to crack it they're going to write the first great sports novel but i don't think it's I think it's inherently impossible. I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean novelists should write sports novels. Quite the opposite. No, I know, I know, but I just, I just needed to get that out there because it's, <laughs> it's, it annoys me that people are still trying. But you know what? You know, it's not probably quite the same thing that you're thinking of. But I'm thinking about Richard Ford's book, The Sports Writer, in which the character is a sports writer. And I don't know if either of you have read that, but that's a, that's a very, very fine novel. Yes, I have, and it is. That's different. It is different. It is different. Anyway, Alison, finish finish your point. But, yes, uh, sorry, about, no, just had to get that off my chest. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yes, well, actually, I'm not sure that it's terribly helpful to me to have been a sports writer for 27 years uh, in writing my novels. They, they were they were something I just felt an urge to do. Um, it wasn't easy to do. It's a really hard process getting novels published these days, really hard. But I, it was a, another ambition. And um, I found if I had problems writing uh, fiction, it, it came from the fact that I am a non-fiction writer. So as a journalist, you are very succinct. You have to tell, you know, um, an amazing story in a thousand words. I mean, you're lucky if you get a thousand words, really. You can get a fantastic interview. If you get 1800 words, you're feeling, oh, really? But you learn to do it. You learn to tell the tale of something huge and sweeping and arcing uh, in in a very sort of condensed economical fashion and of course writing a novel you you do the opposite you take a small moment and you elongate it and add suspense or beauty or poetry or clues or <laughs> so i found that i was writing um very succinct prose i suppose but she, but give that, and it gives you a certain style. So there are my my novels are not ones that you would read and complain were full of description and um, <laughs> pointless paragraphs. They they sort of get to the point. So, 
but you know on the other hand I am used I think my only talent really my real talent is that I can write well very 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 quickly I've I've written things that have been praised highly that are um, 900 a thousand words long and I wrote them in 20 minutes from scratch so if you can do that you can you can get I, I, I only need a clear hour to know that I can write a little bit of novel because I know I'll get a lot done in that time so I am very very dismissive of um, people writers on Twitter novelists who will say oh today I managed to write three pages <laughs> and I think goodness sake get a grip you should be you know <laughs> but I do I do think that your talent to be able to do that is informed by I suspect years and years of reading observing and so on I mean I, you know it's not let's talk a little bit about that Boris because you know the, the, the kind of the demands on being able to write well about something that in the context of the culture that we live in now, if somebody has already watched the sporting event and that you are trying to write about it the next for the next day or even that day on the website of something, then you know you, you're you're going to have to approach it slightly differently. So it's not a report necessarily, but it has to have something completely different, doesn't it? Yes, totally, and and that in turn I think comes down to hinterland and being interested in the topic in a you know in a very wide holistic way reading all around it you know for your own pleasure as much as anything else so that as you say when you come to this and the editorial desk ring up and say i want a 1200 words by four o'clock you can sit down and just bang bang it out because you have all those references in your head because they're things that interest you and move you um and i find this the whole time that that um i mean even even the other day i was for example talking about simone biles when when her her withdrawal came out, the first thing I thought of was something I read years ago, when Sebko in his last um, ever championships, I think it was the 1990 Commonwealth Games in Auckland, he um, he was injured and he had a cold, and the doctor said you got a scratch, and he went no no it's my last championships I'm going to run, and they went back and forth until the doctor goes well do what you want, but I think you're mad, and Co went mad mad, he goes. I spent the last 15 years running around the track anti-clockwise trying to shave fractions of a second off. Of course I'm mad. <laughs> everyone, here, everyone here is mad. And I don't mean it flippantly, but his point was, and I use it actually in the piece as an introduction to something, because his point was that there's nothing normal about top flight sport, which is what the Simone Biles case has brought out, for example, that it's not just a question of, it's, that you, people, these people give their entire lives 24-7 to this and their entire existence hangs on their results. And that was his, and that was his point, and it was, and it was a very effective way of bringing the 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 the, um, the subject in. But if I hadn't just had that in my head because I'd read it and remembered it because I love sports, then it wouldn't have been, then I wouldn't have been able to access it, you know. And and, and things I'm not that interested in, uh, like as Alison said earlier, if it was to do with finance, I wouldn't be able to call up some long forgotten financial case or clause of the FSA because I just wouldn't care. <laughs> Boris, what's what's your view of of the way in which we uh, regard sports people now as as heroes, and how different that feels now? Um, I would I would agree. I mean, and 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 talk, listening to Alison talk about footballers going to the pub. I mean, the acme has always of that has always been for me the fact that the morning after the World Cup final nine sixty six, Jack Charlton woke up on a stranger's sofa in Leytonstone with a belting hangover. And you just literally cannot imagine the likes of David Beckham and Wayne Rooney ever being allowed to do that by the millions of PR handlers and, and so on. Um, but I think there is, and, and, and again, in, this, in a, in a hyper-connected world, there is increasing pressure on, on sportsmen and women to, 
you know, to stand up for things outside their sport. And you see, you know, most obviously with Marcus Rashford, I've um, been working working with Sia Khaleesi um, on his book and Sia does a lot in South Africa for, um, he has a foundation with his wife, Rachel. They do a lot for, um, you know, in terms of inequality, particularly against gender-based violence. It's no coincidence that both Sia and Marcus are, are represented by the same um, agency, by Rock Nation, um, which makes a point of its of its um, clients, particularly its black its black clients, going out and and doing these things, doing social programs, making the world a better place. Mario Tojo as well with his um, drive to put lap- laptops in every school. Um, and I th- I think again, social media has a lot to do with this. It's a lot easier to get these messages across in bite sized chunks on someone's smartphone than it was with a rather cumbersome press release ten twenty years ago. Um, and I think maybe it's the fact we lack other heroes as well. You know, people don't, people no longer respect our politicians. Um, I'm not sure how much they ever did, but they definitely did more so in the past. Um, so yes, and I think I think the flip side is, of course, that a lot of sportsmen and women don't go into the, into it for that at all, and and are not particularly well equipped to deal with, to deal with it. Um, when all they want to do is is be the best at um at what they do. So like anything it's rather a double-edged sword from their point of view i think indeed i i I wonder if if there are sports that just don't lend themselves to writing well about or or that they're just uh, yeah let's leave it at that are there sports that you think don't lend themselves to to be written about in a way that 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 grabs the, the the reader my long long connection with the william hill um is partly because i believe that Every sport can be written about beautifully, and I don't think there's and that that should not exist as an excuse. I think the only I would argue that boxing produces finer writing than the sport itself. So I've yet to see a boxing match as beautiful as some of the best um, boxing writing, that, which that's is strange. Such an interesting insight. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I I have read books on the most obscure sport. And the point of a good sports book is that you should be able to pick it up and have either no interest or have an active distaste for the sport under the microscope and find yourself swept along, either because of the human interest story or because of the power of the writing. Because what ultimately all sports are the same in that somebody um, has to have skill and some form of, form of commitment. And when you see the, the human the human form trying to do something better than the next person. That's a strange thing. It's what makes us human, you could argue, isn't it? That we want to either pirouette more beautifully or tumble more beautifully or run faster. It, you know, it's just, I don't think, I, it, before I before I got heavily involved in judging sports books, I might have said, oh, yeah, I'm not, why, I'm not, not going to read a book about, surfing that's just ridiculous i'm not even sure it's a sport and then you know synchronized swimming bmx biking i bet there's a beautiful story to be told about synchronized swimming actually absolutely beautiful can you imagine but then i read william finnegan's barbarian days a surfing life and it's stunning american novel stroke i mean novel in the good sense in that it's like a sort of autobiography but written beautifully um so it's written as beautifully as a novel would be but it's about his life um how surfing saved him and i've you know um the the best sports writers will find a hundred 
maybe 300 different ways to describe the same thing. So he, William Finnegan, finds 100 ways to describe a wave, you know, a piece of water. He doesn't use the word water more than three times. You know, it's like that is an absolute art. So I think the more obscure the sport, the more narrow the sport, the more dull you find the sport, the better you should expect the best book to be. I mean, I, I never thought that a, a, a great book about snooker could be written. I mean, I'm not interested in snooker. I don't play or anything. And then Gordon Byrne wrote that book. Uh, so, so it is. I mean, you're absolutely right. Boris, what about you? I would totally agree. I don't. I think obviously, there, from a personal point of view, there are sports that I watch more than others, love more than others, and would write better about than others. But I cannot think of a sport that does not have exactly the same level of drama, human interest, tragedy, hubris, pathos, pathos than any other sport. And I think, and weirdly, given we are recording this during the Olympics, um, one of the great joys of the Olympics is that you can turn on and see a sport you haven't seen for the last four years, or in this case, the last five years. And instantly be transported into it and to see all the things that make it as special as other sports. Um, and I would even include this. I play a lot of chess. Um, God, there's definitely millions of brilliant chess books to be written. Um, I love watching the darts and my family laugh at me. And I would say, no, this is this is proper sport. Standing up there and throwing a dart into a, something the size of a double nine from whatever it is, 10 feet away when your mortgage depends on it is absolutely is every bit as hard as taking a penalty in a shootout and and those those things that preparation the training the conquering of your own demons the mental strength the clutch to do it in the pressure that is that is the same in any sport and it's the same in any sports writing and all those people have their own backstories they've all come from somewhere no matter who they are Let, let's end by getting both of you to um to tell us um a favourite book, not of all time, but just one that struck you recently? I'll go for um, A Boy in the Water, I think, by Tom Gregory, because it, I think it follows on from what we've just been discussing. It's about um, the youngest ever person to swim the, the channel. And that's the sort of thing I would think, yawn, yawn. I'm not even sure, again, it's properly sport, but it's the most tear-jerking, captivating story of uh, well everything that you wanted from a sports book there's this you know the amount of days and weeks and years of training and the pushing and that very strange relationship between competitor and coach which is actually quite a weird one in this book and not properly resolved but it's it's got it's it's as good as as any 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 great sports book and again i think probably i like it so much because i was surprised if you go into a book thinking ho hum i don't know and then you find yourself in floods of tears in a public place as i was then you know this this is um this is fine piece of writing it's no wonder you've had such a long association with with the judging of that prize, um, Alison. Uh, Boris, what about you? Um, one that always stays with me is a book by an American journalist called Daniel Coyle called Tour de Force um, about the 2004 cycling season. Um, a lot of it, obviously, is about Lance Armstrong. This is before Armstrong was done for drugs. Um, and it's it's a brilliant book for lots of reasons. Firstly, that it really drills down um, into what makes you know, what makes them do the things they do, um, which is, I think, the heart of any good sports writing is, you know, that as a, especially as a journalist, you often think, you know, you, you think of the what, when, who, where, and how, but as a, as a, as a writer, you think of why, and why is always the most interesting question, and he really gets that. The second thing about this interesting is, is 
is how much he clearly suspects but doesn't say because of legal reasons. And when you read it again, it's like reading a whodunit once you know whodunit. When you read it again, read between the lines of what of what he must have suspected about about Armstrong, because the rumours were all there even then. Um, it's very revealing. And thirdly, it's just beautifully written. Um, and um, there's a bit um, that always um, stays with me when he talks about... Um, Armstrong going up Alpe d'Huez, one of the most famous mountains in the, in the tour, and they did it as a time trial that year. And he said, um, as he comes as he comes across the line, the crowd he said the crowd falls silent um, because they've seen a hundred and whatever it is riders come across it earlier, and they've all looked in various stages of exhaustion. And he goes, Armstrong just had a look of freshly peeled ferocity, and his look asked for um, he didn't he didn't want love or understanding um, or anything except the um, animal respect due a superior force. And it was such a beautiful bit of writing. It so totally nailed what it was all about. Um, I must have read that book five or six times. And and I will probably read it again now that I've remembered it. Boris Starling, Alison Rudd, what absolutely wonderful guests you have been today. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, Read Smart. That is all the time that we have for this episode. Thank you once again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support for this podcast. Do follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest news regarding the prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website for updates straight into your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in non-fiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. This year, the long list will be announced in September, followed by the short list in October. The winner of the prize will be announced on Tuesday, the 16th of November. Bye-bye for now. See you next time. Mm-hmm.